The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. This episode of the Structural Engineering Channel is brought to you by PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the PE structural exam. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the PE structural exam the first time. PPI's PE structural course is fully updated and taught with October 2021 code references and includes new editions of their PE structural books. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. When you take a live online course, PPI guarantees you will pass or you can take the on-demand course for free. PPI has helped engineers achieve their licensing goals since 1975. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all of the resources available for PE structural exam prep. Again, that's ppi2pass.com. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, Matt and I are going to review our top 10 most listened to episodes since the podcast started, and we'll also talk about some great lessons we have learned from the podcast episodes. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. And I'm your co-host, Kara Green. Let's jump right in. So Matt, now that we've recapped all of 2021, let's talk about some of these key episodes. I know I always love a good recap list. I've been listening to my Spotify 2021 list on recurrence all of December. I'm excited to go through these because it's, I know there was a lot of lessons learned, but it's interesting to see what were the most listened to and what were the most interesting lessons that uh, we got from these episodes. So let's start off with episode number 10. This episode was our 10th most listened to episode, and this was uh, way back in uh, episode number 35, where we talked to Drew Dudley, PESE, who was the vice president at Dudley Dunham Engineering and a lecturer at Texas A&M University about the state of structural engineering and higher education. I remember him talking about basically more of the research-dominated aspects of structural engineering and how the universities, their research can go back into and benefit the practical industry side of structural engineering and how they kind of feed off each other. Like, I know there's academia versus industry and how they kind of go back and forth. I remember we talked about this. A lot of the codes, I mean, we need the researchers for that because all the codes are based off of the research. I just found it interesting, and I liked how he put it, like they both need each other. It's kind of like a versus relationship, but they both need each other. One of the things that I remembered from that episode was if the structural engineers were complaining about the codes, why don't they go down the code committees? They don't <laughs> stop complaining if you don't want to make a difference, but a lot of like the researchers are on those code committees. So I think that was one of the things that was really interesting is um, we both like have a symbiotic relationship, but we can both help each other in the industry and 
in academia and the code research. We've talked to a lot of people on this channel, I believe, who have that academic research background, so the PhDs, and then sometimes they translate into the field and start working with customers in as a regular structural engineering design role. And it's always an interesting relationship between the structural engineer and the academic, and especially when they mishmash together. He also said that students, you know, because he is heavily involved in the university as a lecturer who are looking for co-ops or internships should show that they are passionate about what they're doing on their LinkedIn profiles. And that companies always check references so that they should supply the company with references that can be trusted. This was really interesting. And I thought, so when I moved to Texas, at the time, I didn't have a position yet. So I moved to Texas and then started looking instead of trying to find someone who would relocate me. I was in a networking opportunity and there was a gentleman who, he worked in the engineering and industry, more in like the pipeline field. So that sort of engineering. And he actually helped me fill out my LinkedIn profile to make it more desirable to companies because he was like, if you want to compete in the Houston market, this is what you need to do. And at the time, I wasn't necessarily fresh out of college. I had been with my other company for a, a solid year as a staff engineer, but he really helped me out with my LinkedIn and making myself more desirable to, I would say, the more competitive market that is in Texas. So Drew gave a lot of really great information for both talking through academics and structural engineers and how we can have a very nice, mutually beneficial relationship. And then also for our younger audience, some benefits towards fluffing up the LinkedIn profile. Yeah, it was great advice. And LinkedIn's very relevant now. And he basically said, hey, we look at your LinkedIn profile. And I think he even brought up an example of he was looking at uh, a candidate and basically just asked them for an interview because of what they had on their LinkedIn profile. So it's something that employers do and it's something to take in mind. And like you mentioned, I think the best way to do it is get help from hopefully some an industry professional. <laughs> seems like the best way. Find a mentor who will help you out. Or like, I know it sounds really bad and, you know, everyone gets the notification that someone has viewed your LinkedIn profile, but find someone in the position that you would like and see if you can see their roadmap to success and fluff yourself out accordingly. What's good, what's not, and what works. Let's get into episode, our ninth most viewed episode, which was episode 32. And in that episode, we talked to Jason B. Lloyd, PhD, PE, and he was a bridge steel specialist at NSBA about redundancy and steel bridges, steel and failure critical members. And we basically learned that there are certain aspects of engineering that can't be scaled. And I remember him talking about the fatigue and fracture, some of the research that they were doing and some of the testing that they're doing the importance of fatigue and even the inspections that it's important to get inspected for those, especially with kind of recently bridge failures that we've been seeing. Fatigue, of course, is the resistant and has random distribution of flaws that are introduced through material processes. I think common fatigue I hear about is a bunch of like after dynamic loading, the constant loading that happens on structures, especially things like bridges. It does put stress on the structure and all of the steel. So I completely agree. And also we learned that bridges should be inspected every two years, no matter how old the bridge is. <laughs> the construction process, you know, and design process, we are getting more innovative. 
But still, no matter how big and beautiful a bridge is, it still needs to be inspected. Even if it is brand new, once that two-year mark hits, it should be looked at just to make sure everything is going correctly. For such important structures, and I think they're finding out in their research too, they're always finding out new things about you know the inspection process and about the steel bridges and the importance of those because sometimes... We see it on the news like, hey, this bridge had this weird bolt connection and it's like failing and failures that are are happening in bridges. I mean, it's happening in the U.S., so I think it's great to bring that up and the importance of that. One thing that's really interesting about the U.S. is certain cities are always growing. And so when a bridge was construction, let's say it had a lifetime of 100 years because that was a relevant lifetime at the time of construction. You know, they weren't expecting maybe a certain populous growth or that bridge being used by a certain amount of people every single day. So it's always great to kind of go back and revisit the loading requirements and make sure everything's kosher with uh, bridges, especially because, I mean, people rely on them every single day just to get from point A to point B. So let's talk about our next, which is our eighth most listened to episode, which was episode number 29. We talked with Professor Dr. Olivier Vassart, Chief Executive Officer of Stelligence at our Seller Mittal about fire engineering, about why structures need to be constructed in line with the fire safety codes and regulations. I remember him saying that if all the different parts of construction are built to be optimum, then you rarely have an optimum structure. So you need to make a sacrifice somewhere to optimize the entire structure. I remember him talking about the fire engineering and how that topic is becoming more and more relevant throughout the world in Euro codes and even in the US codes. I know there's uh, engineers that are specializing in fire engineering, the, like structural fire engineering and performance-based design of fire engineering as well and where it's actually needed. Because even though it's not one of the main things that we study in school, once you get into the industry and you learn about all these different code requirements for fire codes and fire safety, it's big concern and it's relevant and it affects like the structural design. That's really important for the public because I'm sure there's those great fires that people are really scared of. And if they're trapped in a building, how are they going to get out? So making sure all those things are in place and are properly studied and designed. It was a great conversation to have with them. There's actually a really good ASCE design guide around structural fire engineering. And one of the main projects is the Twin Towers. That was one of the main, I guess, focus of the research around structural fire engineering. So one of the main case studies that the author focused on was there was a couple of floors in particular that were heavily impacted by the fire of the airplane. And this is mentioned in the design guide. And that was a key thing that he looked at during the collapse, of course, of the Twin Towers. That was one thing that was looked at was the structural fire engineering and, you know, kind of the impact of if certain things had changed or had been different or if his suggestions had been implemented, would the collapse have happened? There's a lot of really interesting study or case studies around structural fire engineering and like I said, there's an ASCE design guide out that is really interesting to read about and kind of what the future of structural fire engineering will look like. And it's definitely an important topic, especially during those case studies when it does happen. It does bring a, a big public perception on 
hey, what are we doing with these buildings? We're studying it. You know what we're doing and the importance of fire engineering. Moving on to our seventh most listened episode, which was episode number three way back then. We talked to Ron Hamburger, who was a senior principal at Simpson, Gumperts, and Heger, and Evan Reese, who was the co-founder of the U.S. Resiliency Council. Uh, We talked to them about base isolation. And what I remember about these is I remember we were discussing even some articles about uh, different countries like Japan, where it is more uh, acceptable to use base isolation. How come we're not using base isolation in the U.S.? One of the things that was interesting that we talked about and kind of was like the culture of, let's just say, U.S. versus Japan. In Japan, they were talking about psychologically wise, you know, they were hit with a lot more earthquakes than us here in California in the last couple of decades. So I guess their fear factor of earthquakes is, is pretty high. And an interesting thing that we talked about was when they're on a train in Japan, when they're advertising apartments, they advertise base isolation because your typical like citizen is going to know about earthquakes. They're scared about earthquakes. And when they're looking for a place to live, they want to be protected from earthquakes. So seismic isolation was actually a selling point over there. And that was something that the public wanted. Because of that, over here in the West Coast, we haven't really been hit by anything major, major in the last couple decades. And so it's not really in the fear of the public, I think maybe the perception is, oh yeah, we get hit by earthquakes all the time, nothing really happens, it just hasn't hit in the right location. So it's not really a selling factor for people in the U.S., which is interesting. Another thing was why base isolation wasn't being used here that often was uh, the U.S. codes. I think when we talked to them, it was a lot of uh, cost-prohibitive things about U.S. codes, about base isolation. It's basically very expensive to implement here if you want to get it uh, used. It's pretty much the code, and it was basically expensive to just implement them here in the U.S., which was an interesting thing from the psychological perspective and also from the code perspective. Money is definitely a big inhibitor (laughs) in the construction market in the U.S. It's hard to sell uh, to your owners get base isolation, it's expensive, and it'll be protected from earthquakes. But then, well, if they just want to sell the building, they probably wouldn't care about uh, base isolation. And so moving on to our sixth most listened to episode, which was episode number two, we talked with David Cocky, Stephanie Slocum, and Dr. Elena Sutley at the ASCE-SEI Structures Congress in Orlando. So what stood out for me from this episode is when we were talking about commodities and how too often when we complain that we are a commodity as a structural engineer is because we are looking at it from the perspective of what's in it for me as opposed to how can I best serve my client. When we change that thinking in our brain, we bring a better value proposition and thus benefit ourselves financially sometimes. And I think it was really important because the salary of structural engineers and the pay, that's an issue and something that always gets brought up But in terms of the whole industry as a whole, for all the things that we do and all the liability we take, why are we not paid more? And uh, going into this stuff, I think that change of perspective, if you have that what's in it for me perspective, it's kind of just, you do become a commodity. It's how do I make the next buck? How do I win this job? Let's lower our prices. If we just go super low, they'll pick us because we're super cheap. And I just need to get my next paycheck paid just so I'll do whatever it takes. You know, it's not just about you. It's if you think more about the client, how you can best serve the client, what does the client actually want? 
and you can provide those services, that's when you can start getting more into a premium market where you can start charging higher prices because that's you're not just a commodity. It's, hey, you're more expensive. We're not the cheapest engineer, but we're charging a fair price. And here's why. It's because, you know, we know what you care about. We know what you really want out of this project, what's really important to you and the things that you've encountered in the past that didn't go so well. You know, this is how we took care of it and how we're taking care of it. And that's when you can charge more the premium prices when you actually know what your client uh, has gone through and what they're looking for in the next uh, project. And I think a lot of structural engineers or engineering firms in general are kind of taking this approach now as opposed to being this uber competitive low baller, get all the junior engineers to do the work because their time card is a lot less. I remember when I was a junior engineer, what I was paid and what my supervisor and the owner of the company was paid (laughs) per hour. I think we're seeing that kind of change in the industry, especially on how we approach our customers as well. Like it's less of a, here's a final project deliverable. And I think a lot of engineers are providing almost um, like a continued service, like to help with like further engineering on the building or the structure to help facilitate that connection with the customer saying, or the owner that we're going to be with you for the entire time that you own this structure and we will help you. And I think that also is a key value driver in helping with not commoditizing our talents. Number five on our list, episode number 39, we talked with Andrew or Drew Twarik, project manager at Ruby Associates, Inc., structural engineers about construction engineering, what it is and how it differs from regular structural engineering. He talked about why contractors need a construction engineer, and he said that it was to ensure the safety of the workers and the structure in the design phase when they have the construction issues that they need to solve or run into problems that need repairing. And that was a great episode. And I think it's really interesting, especially because, you know, the construction phase, it's all amazing to have this beautiful design already planned out and it works perfect on paper, but the actual implementation sometimes needs a little finessing to get the structural engineer's vision to actually happen. So I don't know, Matt, what do you think about working with construction engineers when they're working for a contractor? I think it's really interesting. I remember when talking uh, to Drew about it, he was showing us some of his projects and they were like really interesting, Uh, some really complicated scaffolding, really custom engineering projects that were their own engineering projects to their own right. I remember there were like huge billboards that, or huge signages that they were trying to uh, erect or install and uh, huge scaffolding structures that were custom. They were really interesting. And uh, I remember talking to him and he was really interested in that work. And I could see why, because these weren't your typical cut and paste projects where you can just go into a spreadsheet, put in the numbers, done. These were really custom with the structures that they were going with and finding those unique solutions that maybe no one's found ever a solution for that. It can get really interesting when you're working in construction engineering because you're going to run into stuff that maybe no one's done before. You'll find another way to do it. And I think you also have to kind of think on your feet because if you're working as a construction engineer under a contractor, you know, your contractor is the one paying your bills and they are very time bound (laughs) if they're working for the owner. Yeah, we're building this tomorrow. Can you give us a design? (laughs) The building's tomorrow. You have an hour. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and then going on to our fourth most listened episode, which is episode number 20. That was with Stan Caldwell, a structural engineering consultant who primarily consults on you know construction litigation. That was cool talking to him because he provided five tips for structural engineers to become the best version of themselves. He gave uh, some really great tips. They were uh, your mind the gap, ensure stability, design first, then compute, be a sponge, and own your work. One of my favorite things was when he was going through the design process, especially for new engineers, over-reliance on software, especially. And it was cool to see how he kind of goes about training new engineers on that. And he gave like a great outline of what you should be thinking about, especially if you're new, on how that building should be designed and what your design and workflow process should be. I really enjoyed that part because he kind of just gave about the details on how you should know the answer first before you get into the software engineering. And you should always be doing some type of back check with your work because that stuff gets built and hopefully your company has a QC process, but sometimes that stuff can get missed and no one likes that when it goes out into the field and then you have an issue. So some really great advice over there that I enjoyed. And I can relate to his comment about being a sponge. I remember when I was a junior engineer, I had a supervisor who literally took me on every single project that she went on to. She showed me the ropes. And it was really fortunate because she was also a female supervisor. So we got along great. But she did. She definitely showed me the ropes. And one of the most interesting things about that company is you're exactly right. So they checked all of my work. But... I don't want to say they let me fail first, but they would like throw me into situations. They would be like, give me your first attempt and see where you went with it. After the review process, they would give me their corrections or they would be like, that's a solid approach. So that be a sponge comment is it hits hard and it just reminds me of my time being a junior engineer and all of the things that I had to absorb to become impactful in my job and turn over some revenue for the company. For new engineers, it's always, you know, ask questions, ask the questions, ask the questions. Because you're talking to someone probably that has like 20, 30, 40 plus years of experience. A lot of the things come second nature to them. It's like driving a car for so long, you kind of just forget about what you're doing. And it's like, isn't this common knowledge to everybody? But you as a new engineer have to remind them, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's my first time seeing this. And uh, that's why asking those questions can really help you stand out in your career. Because not only it shows that you're willing to learn, but the type of questions that you ask can really make a good impression on your project managers. And so moving on to our third most listened to episode, episode number 40, Alexis actually interviewed you, Matt. Here is where you kind of provided some helpful tips on how to prepare for the SE exam. And you talked about what the exam is, why it's so difficult, and the benefits of earning an SE licensure. So Matt, do you want to give our listeners an update on how things went with the exam? I remember that uh, interview and the difficulty of it for sure. There's two parts to it. And I remember I passed the first part, but then, yeah, I'm still trying to pass that second part, which is the SE lateral. It's difficult. (laughs) I'm still taking it. So it's uh, kind of just those things that, yeah, it's a hard test. I'm studying for it again, and the advice that I would give uh, reminiscing about that episode is uh, keep trying, keep studying. It's a tough test, and the pass rates are really low. Do you know a statistic? For the SE lateral, 
it changes every year, but I've seen like a 75% uh, fail rate or 25% pass rate. So it's a difficult test. And for any engineers that are studying for it, don't underestimate the test. Uh, try your best. And if you fail, just keep going at it. And you know, don't put all, all of your uh, self-identity into these tests. They're, they're tough tests. And a lot of the stuff you're not even going to know or don't even work with. So if it's your goal to get that, just keep trying. There's plenty of people that didn't pass. And don't put yourself down or think you're not a good engineer. Because, uh, yeah, a lot of these tests, you don't even work with them. So it's just keep trying and uh, you'll eventually get it. Even younger engineers who may be an EIT taking their PE, like I remember my supervisor ended up taking the PE twice and got it the second time. I mean, these tests are just standardized ways of testing and it encompasses multiple different applications that you may not even work with. And I had a transportation professor and I remember he made the mention of like transportation equations are very easy, but I remember like getting a transportation question on the PE exam that was like incredibly difficult. And I was like, did I miss something? <laughs> I don't remember this. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And I think also about putting your identity into a test, like remove all ego. <laughs> it does not matter. Yeah, you talk to enough people and some of the smartest engineers that I've known and that other people have known, you think they passed on the first time, but then you'll be surprised on how many of them took it or retook it or just gave up on it because like they're a bridge engineer and they don't really need their SE license, but they're like some of the most intelligent and smart engineers that are out there. And yeah, you don't need a license to do that, but you may need a license for you know other things like state licensure and stuff. Moving on to our second most listened to episode, which was episode number 57. In this episode, we talked to Emily Guglielmo, the past president of the National Council of Structural Engineers Association, or SEA, and the Structural Engineers Association of Northern California. And this one, we talked about building safety in response to the Surfside building collapse in Miami. We talked about, you know, the engineer's role in post-collapse and how the collapse, especially that particular event, affected or will affect the building codes and uh, the public perception of structural engineers in general. We talked to her very closely after the collapse. So it was very interesting to see how this will affect in the future. But one of the things that I recall is that she talked about the three roles of a structural engineer in post-collapse. So first, of course, is the role to help with search and rescue and to help the first responders to work through in the safest possible conditions. So this is always really interesting because I was talking with family members about Surfside and they're like, well, why don't they just all rush in and get all of the people out? And I'm like, that building is collapsed. It's not safe for even people to try and go in right now, let alone try and pull people out at this time. So, of course, that's the first role is to try and help stabilize the structure in a way that we can serve and rescue efforts. And then the second role, of course, is the forensic and the technical investigation into the cause of the collapse. So this is like the fact-finding mission of determining what actually caused the collapse in the first place. And then third, this role is kind of very interesting because this is when a structural engineer gets involved to make changes to the building codes, how drawings are permitted, the quality assurance process, building maintenance, and then licensure requirements. So it was very interesting to talk about her thought process on the three key roles of the structural engineer following a tragedy like that. 
the public reaching out to structural engineers, especially the news outlets, and even training about how to respond to the public media. Because the public media, when they reach out to a structural engineer that's never gotten publicity, they just might want to get on like the talk show or whatnot and talk about, oh yeah, I think XYZ happened because of XYZ. That's probably not the best approach that we came up with when we talked to her was, hey, wait for the official reports because there's so many things, so many factors that could have happened and that could have triggered it. And um, the news outlets, they're not looking for the truth. They want something sensational or, oh, this engineer said this and this is why it failed and then they'll, that'll blow up and then that may not be true. And that's something that's, that we don't want to happen as you know the structural engineers. The investigation was still ongoing, and then maybe a structural engineer said something, you know, the media would clip, just a clip of it, like saying something out of context, and then that could potentially blow up in, on the internet especially. So things like that, it's stuff that we need to be aware of as structural engineers, especially since we don't have a lot of public media, I guess, exposure on there. So it was really interesting to, to talk about. You and me, Matt, we are on this podcast and we talk all the time and I know that we have listeners, but it's very interesting to have, if you don't have a consistent conversation with the public, it can be very, I would say shocking or almost like paralyzing to provide a very like thoughtful response. So you're exactly right. What Emily said, where she was like, you know, take a pause before you respond in any sort of way that may seem official just by your degree or your profession and wait until the professionals or the actual forensic engineers on the project come out with a statement. Going on to our final episode, our most listened to episode is episode number 28, where we talk to Mostafa Elmogi, PhD, where he talked about the design of high-rises and the structural engineering profession, and he discussed the procedure for like wind tunnel testing for high-rises. I remember he was talking about some of the projects that he did and all the things that go into high-rise design that may not go into you know, your typical one- or two-story buildings. It's really interesting to see the software that he used, the construction methods, and even the whole wind tunnel testing. You can't just go into the codes and go to a table and find the wind loads. They actually had to do mock-up models and whatnot, and even some of the construction challenges that they faced just to get a high-rise building up. So that was a really interesting episode where he talked about that. I think wind tunnel testing is so interesting. I've attended certain talks about wind tunnel testing and how they do the procedure. And it's just ASC 716 where they updated the wind loads. Wasn't that correct? Yeah, a lot of uh, wind changes in the latest code. And I feel like wind tunnel testing has become even more prevalent since then. And I know when I worked in Houston, wind was a big issue because we were right along the coastline. We had high rises. I don't recall. I'm not super familiar with wind tunnel testing on high rises, but I'm more familiar with it for roof diaphragm attachments and that sort of thing. So it was a good conversation. When we were discussing, I think that portion of it, the wind tunnel testing, even the the way it's shaped, the high rise structure, in those cases, wind was a, a huge factor. And I think you can see it in like the latest high rises. Like the architecture would even be influenced by the wind tunnel test because how it behaves during the actual wind tunnel testing, they could shape or they could adjust the shape of the high rise to maybe funnel the wind through, uh, basically reduce the wind loads and have less drag on the structure. 
And it was interesting to see how the architecture would be affected by that. And even just the solutions that were coming from like the structural engineers, if maybe if you shaped it this way, or maybe if you had an opening here, even that could greatly reduce some of the wind loads. So that's interesting. There's this video that keeps popping up on my LinkedIn and it is of a shake table. And I think it's, it's something it, for seismic in California where it's students who build like a popsicle stick building and they put it on a shake table and they see kind of how long it lasts. I wonder if ASCE, I'm kind of like, this is a hearty suggestion. We need a popsicle stick test for a high rise, but with like a wind tunnel. So let's get one of those industrial grade fans and see if we can cause some damage. Do I remember Concrete Canoe. That was the big one when I was in school or the bridge design contest for ASCE, the student chapters. But it'd be interesting to see if we could at some point do a test on wind testing for students and do like a high-rise popsicle stick with a big fan situation. Maybe ways to make the most aerodynamic. Yeah, it's getting into like racing cars and uh, the aerodynamics of cars and uh, airplanes. That's a thing for buildings too. Uh, yeah. If anyone from ASCE listens and does those competitions, just a suggestion. <laughs> I would watch. And that wraps it up for this episode. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. It was great to turn and talk through the top 10. Yeah, it was really interesting to reminisce about all those episodes and all the lessons that we learned. Make sure to go check out the structuralengineeringchannel.com and uh, to check uh, these episodes out. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 70, as well as any links to the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.